Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 290. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 290 you're listening to. My guest today is Joe Ciccarelli. Joe, as many of you know, is a producer, engineer, mixer who has worked with a lot of people you know. Frank Zappa, of course, the Tours, Morrissey, Oingo Boingo, The Shins, Jack White, uh, My Morning Jacket, The Strokes, The Killers, Cage the Elephant, Pink Martini, U2, Rufus Wainwright, Elton John. Yeah, it just goes on and on and on and on. He's been a very busy man since the 80s, and I've known him uh, for 26 years. Joe and I met when I was in this band called Seven Day Diary, and we were putting out an EP on Reprise Records. We picked Joe to do the EP, and we did it at Coast Recorders, which I would go on to take over in future years. Joe is one of the people that, for me, when I talk about how I got into audio and being an audio professional, Joe is one of the people that I cite as an inspiration because watching him do his thing was definitely inspirational, motivational, and definitely taught me what I needed to know to get up and running in this business because Joe is one of the best people to learn from out there. Just to listen to him talk about the craft of making records is inspirational. So super happy to have him on, Joe Ciccarelli, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about staying connected. Many of you who have been longtime listeners of this show know I'm a big proponent of meeting up for coffee with people. It's a great way to meet new people, great way to welcome people into your community. Coffee and the world of audio, to me, go hand in hand. It's a match made in heaven. And it just happens to coincide with my caffeine addiction. In this current time period, you know, what are we to do? Well, I think you all know the answer. Video calls, right? There is absolutely no reason we can't do virtual coffees. You know, each person can make their cup of coffee, agree to meet up in a a Zoom call or whatever video service you like, and have the conversation. You can always send a message to somebody on LinkedIn or, or Facebook or wherever you connect with people. If all the parameters exist that would cause you to reach out to that person to have an in-person coffee, if all that exists, then it seems to be that that could easily work in a virtual type of situation. The benefit is, is that you're each in the comfort of your own home. Reaching out, either somebody you've known for a long time or somebody that you would like to become acquainted with, this is a great way to do it. Now, obviously not everybody's gonna be open to this. Now, I know some of you might think, oh, you know what, I'm gonna reach out to some of my heroes and see if they'll, they'll have coffee with me. Just remember, people are busy and people get a lot of requests for their time. So don't be offended if somebody turns you down. Start with the people within your community, maybe, and work your way forward. Maybe you can reach out to somebody that you aspire to talk to at a later time. Sometimes the one-on-one calls for some can be a little creepy. So maybe the thing to do is, is arrange group calls. And that way you can mix it up with some people you know, some people you don't know too well, 
that you're going to become better friends with. And that kind of helps keep that connection going. I talked about this uh, a bit in the early stages of the uh, the stay-at-home orders that we've had, what seems like many, many months ago. So just bringing it up again, trying to reinforce that sense of community, that, uh, that ability to reach out and connect. Try to arrange things as a group call maybe to start. And if you need to have a breakout call with somebody one-on-one, you can do that later. But, you know, start with the group thing. Maybe set a, a, some time parameters, 30 minutes, 45, an hour. And depending on where people are located, they'll either join you or they won't. Some people might be asleep, of course, if they're in a time zone opposite you. Something to consider. Stay connected, don't go crazy, and drink more coffee. Thanks for listening. That's it. Let's get to it. Joe Ciccarelli here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Matt, great to be here. We've been talking about doing this for two years now, and I'm glad it's finally happening. I know. It's been a long time in the making. I think what's interesting for me as I look back on it, I've known you for 26 years. I don't know if uh, you were... Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> I don't want to know those numbers. <laughs> yes, I remember. Seven Day Diary. At Coast. We were at Coast Recorders. Yeah, it was Coast. I was trying to remember the name of it at the time. Yeah. Yeah, Coast, which was a great sounding room. Yeah, that was a fun project. Let's see. The band I was in at the time, Seven Day Diary, was managed by the same people that was managing American Music Club, who you had also worked with. That's right. And I believe you had Tracy Chisholm with you as an engineer yeah, at the time. That's right. Tracy was engineering for me. Yeah, that was an interesting experience just working locally because my past experience had been you go out of town to do this, but that was kind of my first exploration into doing oh, things on, on a large level locally in San Francisco. A lot of what I learned about making records, I learned from my early experiences with you and Larry Hirsch. Damaged you forever. And Gil Norton, yeah, damaged me forever. Gave me a, a hopeless addiction. You have been at this for quite some time. You've been at this since the 80s. And I know that you got your start. You're from Massachusetts, from Boston. Your bass player. And it was, I think it was Fleetwood Studios you uh, you got. Yeah, I had a second cousin that owned a studio. And I was, when I was playing in bands and stuff, I was always fascinated by the studio. And, you know, was the typical geek in the band, had my four-track recorder and all that kind of thing, and just got into the recording part of the process. And I told my parents that I was into recording, and they obviously knew that, but they said, well, you know, you have a cousin that owns a recording studio, like hmm. a second cousin. And I was like, wow, oh, that's great. So called them, went down there, was just mesmerized by the whole thing. The engineer at the studio let me hang out there. So I would just go there on school vacations and sweep floors, package things up, do whatever needed to be done to get in the door and, and stay there. And eventually I moved out to LA and lucked out and got a gig as an assistant engineer at Cherokee Studios. At what point did you actually start calling yourself a producer or producing records in the way that you do? I didn't know it at the time. 
But when I was in bands and in the studio engineering, being hired as an engineer, I was always a contributor. I always felt like if I had something to add, if I could help somebody make a better record by volunteering advice on any level, whether it was musical arrangement, performance, sound, concept of the recording, I did. And it was out of innocence and love and not trying to get a credit on the record or something or other. And and I, I think that's part of the role of a producer is that you're an objective force. And I always tried to be that when I was like in a band, I always tried to be like the guy that stood back and took a look at the concept of the band and the direction. And I, I was kind of always concerned maybe about people's sounds or their parts, but it really there was no label for what you were doing. You were just a contributor. So when I start calling myself a producer, I don't know. It was almost when somebody called me a producer. You know, the, the role of the producer has changed over the decades, maybe even started as a guy that was the executive in the record label and didn't have much input into the recording, but just kind of supervised it. Then it became the guy that was the perhaps musical arranger. And then it became the engineer because as technology and multi-tracking and everything got to be more involved, they needed people to run the sessions that were more in command of the technology. So with me specifically, I, I don't know what the first record I did that somebody put my name on as a producer. And it's interesting you ask because, you know, the job description changes daily, you know, <laughs> some projects, you're so involved in every detail of the musical arrangements and other projects, you're not. It's about getting good sounds and good performances. The band might have it all together on a, an arrangemental front. So now, you know, we're in the era of songwriter producer, and we've been there for a while that songwriters have always kind of written a song and had a vision for the song. And maybe it started because they felt like when they brought their songs to other artists or producers to record, they weren't happy with the results of the arrangements. So they started taking charge of things and producing the demos themselves. In fact, the 80s, I seem to remember being an engineer on many projects and songwriters would come into the sessions with demos that were fully fleshed out and you were kind of copying the demo most of the time. Who were you following then in your early part of your career as as a guide, as a mentor, as a as a person to look to to go, I want to be like that person or or do this like this person? Boy, a little bit of everybody. I, I think if a record came on the radio that I was enamored with and just taken aback by the production. I would dive into it and read the album credits and want to know how they achieved that. I mean, maybe as a young, young kid listening to Beach Boys records and later Zeppelin. And then in the 80s, there were so many great records that came out on a production level. Obviously, a sonic level, I was taken by Bob Claremont's work all the time. Production-wise, stuff like Tears for Fears and all the stuff coming from the UK. The UK stuff always interested me because it was just bolder. It felt like they took more chances. It felt like the records that were being made in the States, especially LA, were 
cleaner and slicker and smoother and more hi-fi, more polished. And, and that's legit. That's got a thing. But everything coming from England just seemed way more radical to me and way more inventive. So yeah, I was I was always really, really blown away by that stuff. The Clash is an all-time favorite band and, and production on those records is great because it, one minute it can be super lo-fi and the next minute it can be big and powerful and punchy. And that was always interesting to me. So I don't think there was really one person that was like the turning point that I said, I, I have to do this. I have to be that guy. Now, I told you when we talked the other day, I said, I'm not going to grill you with endless Frank Zappa questions because it's well documented that you worked with Frank and there's a bazillion questions and answers out there. So for the audience, if, if you're looking for that, you can find that elsewhere. But I will ask you this one thing about Frank. What's the most important piece of advice or wisdom he imparted on you that you carry with you to this day? So are you talking about maybe his politics or <laughs> musical <laughs> advice? Um, Either one. You know, he would no, Frank. Frank was everything. I didn't, I've said this before, I didn't realize it at the time. It was just like, that was really my first gig as a freelance engineer. And it was a gig. And I loved Frank. I thought he was brilliant. I wasn't like the biggest Frank Zappa fan at the time. I really didn't know much about the music. So it was a gig. But when I saw his brilliance and just was amazed by what he was always trying to achieve and more so his drive for the unique. That's the thing that really, really kind of locked me into working with him. Everything had to be special. Everything had to be unique sounding, odd sounding. It had to grab your ear. It couldn't be conventional or even properly recorded. It just had to captivate you. And Frank always like just wanted to push the envelope at every corner and not do the norm. So that really helped me personally. I mean, I think that that was a great growth step in terms of learning to record because everything I'd learned up to that point was maybe the proper way to mic something or mm. the proper way to use a compressor or EQ or whatever. And then along came this guy that everything was about just messing stuff up and breaking rules. And at the same time, when I was working at Cherokee as an assistant, I got to work with the best people like George Martin and Roy Thomas Baker and the Rob brothers that owned the studio and so many great producers. And But Roy came along and Roy, man, this was a guy that made bold, exciting, powerful, unique sounding records. And they were all different for every artist that he worked with. They sonically were different, arrangementally were different. And Roy just like didn't care about anything. He just would like twist knobs and do things until he thought something sounded interesting. And when you talk to him about recording techniques, I don't even know if he had any techniques. It was, he just kind of went for it. So so those th two things kind of happened at the same time. And I so all of a sudden realized like, wow, there's a different way to approach making records than the ways that I had seen other people do that were much more textbook. Mm -hmm. So with Frank, I think the thing was just being radical, being bold, 
being unique, grabbing people's attention. It's not a document. It's not a, a photograph. Well, let's turn our attention to you and how you work. When you go to produce a record, what's, what's the mindset that you have when you're hired to produce a record? Where is your head at when the deal's been sealed and you're going in to work with somebody? How do you prepare? What are you thinking about? What's the approach? Okay, well, I mean, the approach is different on every record. For instance, I'm about to start a production for a band, an L.A. band, signed to a big label. And so I was sent demos, and instantly, within hearing 30 seconds of a recording that was done in their rehearsal room and, and pretty funky sounding, I was just taken by it. They sounded fresh. They sounded powerful. They sounded like there were moments that were throwbacks to those early kind of clash recordings that we were talking about, or that era gang of four, maybe even material talking heads. So on a relatability level, it was like certainly high on my scale. So I was instantly captured, but the parts were different. They energy was really, really high. So I immediately, I, I don't even know if I got through the half a dozen songs that were on the demo. So I called my manager and just said, I'm in and tell these guys, I want to talk to them. I want to meet with them. I love this stuff, you know? And I talked to the A&R guy and I actually sent an email to my manager as well saying, I love this stuff. I think it's timely. I think it's got so much potential, but I think that there are some things that could be improved in terms of the musical arrangements, in terms of the direction, in terms of the writing, everything. And if they're open to push this to take that more than where it's at now, because sometimes artists come to you and go like, man, I've written the songs, I've demoed them at home. I don't really think there's anything more I need to do just get better sounds, get better performances. And that's a tricky one for me if I'm feeling like, okay, this is really good, but there's more work to be done. Sometimes it's almost like, I don't want to get involved. If somebody believes the demos are so perfect and I don't, that's a red flag. So I might not want to get involved in the project. But in this particular case, everybody was open to talking and I'm very forthcoming and just said, look, this is what I think is great. This is what I think could use some help. And if you guys are into it, I'm really into this. So we're starting pre-production. We started last week and, you know, it's a process of me going to their rehearsal space and sitting there and working out arrangements, taking what they have and just telling them like that. Here's what I love about it. Here's what I think could be better. Here's where my attention gets lost. Here's what I think is just working perfectly. Don't touch it. Those kinds of things. And then I'll work with them on bass and drum grooves, song structure, tempo, all those things that really matter. So that's the beginning start of the process before I even get into the studio. And I think, you know, even going way back to Seven Day Diary or American music club days, time was spent doing that. And I often feel like that's kind of like the key part of the process, especially with bands. I think it's getting those fundamental elements in place that matters more than anything. Does it frustrate you to no end when you hear something like a demo that you think has great potential, needs all the work that you've described, and the band just pushes back and says, no, that's how we've always done it. We, we don't want to change. 
Of course. But yeah. you feel passionate about it. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, you have to be a master at psychology with this stuff. And sometimes it's, it's not being manipulative in any way, but sometimes it's being really blunt and saying, okay, what you have is good, but here's what I think will help it. You want to try this. Let me just show you something and see what you feel about it. Sometimes people all of a sudden, when they see something different, hear something different, they're like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's kind of what we do normally, but it's even more exciting or it's more developed or more nuanced or whatever. But yeah, it can be super frustrating at times when people feel like they want to put up a wall, they want to limit themselves. To me, that's kind of a, a just a mistake, period, to say it ends here, that you can't go any further. There isn't any possibility beyond this. And I find myself doing it too. You know, I'll get to a point where I'll feel like this is it. The song is done. The song is done. It's great. It's great. It's great. And the artist comes in and it's like, I don't know about this or I don't like that. And you're sort of like, I don't know. It's good. Don't mess with it. Don't mess with it. And you got to just go, okay, Joe, take a deep breath, <laughs> hear them out. Let's see where it can go. I mean, the great thing about working digital is that you can move stuff around, you can rearrange the furniture, and you can always go back to what you once had before. So I definitely find myself going, okay, yeah, let's try that and let's see if it's better. And oftentimes it is, and other times you got to go, you know, I think we had something before that really was more captivating. This is perhaps more interesting, but on a gut level, I don't know, my attention was held better before or whatever the parameter that's changed is. But I don't know. I think the biggest thing for me is just being really honest about it and just telling people. I feel like the only really useful tool I have, the only skill set I really have is my gut, my intuition. Mm -hmm. And everything else is useless. And if I don't sort of respect that and keep that forefront, then I'm not helping anybody. So if I really on a gut level feel something works better one way, I, I sort of have to speak up and, and say that. And I'm willing to go down another road, but I'll let it be known what it is about that other way that I feel attached to and why it moves me and why this other way doesn't move me. What do you think is the best way to handle disagreements between you and an artist? At what point do you throw the white flag up and go, I surrender, you win on this one? Oh, I, I mean, when it's clearly better. There are plenty of times where I'm the stubborn one that, that I'll feel something one way and the artist feels it another way. And all of a sudden you just sort of take a deep breath walk out the door for a second or hear the song in a different light and you're like, you know, this is better. You're absolutely right. I see what was bugging you before about it. This is clearly an improvement. I'm good. I'm 100% good. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the artist's record. You're there to really just help them along and help them make a better version of what it is that is in their head. So if they really want something one way, it's their record. And, you know, even though you're going to have doubts about it, you got to go there. I always kind of go into every project with a very clear idea of where I think it should go. And that's down to the details of the sound and the arrangement and, and everything. I mean, I kind of try to work from the end product back. And I kind of 
just go for that. And anyways, I had something recently where I really had a very specific place I wanted to go with it. And we all started working there, but it got pulled in another place. And at the end of the day, the artist was really happy with it. I was happy. I think that the place it ended up in was really well executed and really well performed. However, I thought that it might not be the best direction for this artist at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And just had to say, look, I love this. I think we did really, really good work here. To be honest, I would love it if it were a little bit more in this direction. But I have to say, I really think we did a good job. The outcome is good. I'm still engaged and moved by the song, but I wish the coloration were a little bit left or right from where we ended up. I'm sure, I mean, with working with so many people over the years, what have you learned about working with various personalities? Because some people are stone cold crazy and some people are very just normal, everyday people. How could you sum that up and, and how you deal with those various personalities? Well, you got to do you got to do a little research before you get into the project. <laughs> you know, you got to decide like is this person's level of of crazy as you put it, something that you can deal with? Are they just really passionate about what they're doing or are they crazy? I mean, it's the unclear indecisive ones that I have a hardest time with. People who are very focused and very clear on what they want, that's really easy to me. The only decision there is, well, do I agree with them? And if I disagree with them, then the question is going to be, can I help execute their vision and feel okay about it and put myself into it 100%? That's really the, the question there. But I think Going into the project, I really tried to spend some time with the artist and evaluate how clear they are about things, how focused they are, if they're hard workers, if they're going to be 100% committed to this the whole way. So there's definitely a period where you have to do your due diligence on the project before you get involved. Especially, you know, when we're talking about album projects here that are taking two or three months and somebody's investing hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. The sad thing right now is that everything is about EPs and singles and it's not so much about albums. And I miss that. That's kind of a, a drag. I love getting into the big picture and feeling like this is what the album is all about and these are what these songs are all about. And when you're doing an EP or just a couple of tracks, you don't get the wholeness of the artist always, you know, because it's usually the tracks are for a single or this or that. So I don't know, I feel like I'm just not getting the whole experience. So it's a little frustrating these days at times. But, you know, this is the world we live in now. When you do a whole album, emotionally, that can be a very draining thing. And at the end of the project where you're just like, oh, okay, I got to take a break. Do you have to provide yourself some decompression time between projects so you don't just have a mental breakdown of, of, of any <laughs> Yes. The projects that go on for four and six months, absolutely. I mean, sometimes they're broken up in the sense that somebody puts two months into the project and then they go off for a month to tour or whatever it is, and you go off and do something else. And usually the 
experience of working with another artist who might be very, very different in their approach than the artist that you were just working with definitely helps you get a fresh perspective on things. And usually you come back to the project with more appreciation for what's there. And even not hearing the tunes for a month or two and then hearing them again, you start to go, hey, oh, this is really, really good. Wow, I forgot how much I love these tunes. And that gets you invigorated. You dive in deeper. I always find like if I'm working on a project nonstop for two, three months, whatever it is, there's always a two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the project. There's always a moment, whether it's a few days or a few weeks, where I just hate everything. I hate the songs. <laughs> I hate the recording. I hate the concept. I, I just think it's all wrong. Everything missed the mark. At that point, I'm in like salvage mode. I'm just trying to make the thing bearable so I can listen to it for the next few weeks. And then all of a sudden something happened, sun comes out, whatever. And you're like, oh, these songs are really great. Wow. This artist is really, really amazing. And then you go into mixing and you come in with this just enlivened feeling of like, wow, I'm really taking part in something special. This is really, really great. But I definitely find I have to go through that <laughs> valley before I get there. <laughs> well, you know, you, unlike some producers, don't seem to be pigeonholed into one genre. Like, so I would assume that if you're producing metal records, like really hard metal records, that space between projects would be key because you would just burn out. Do you work on a variety? It doesn't seem like you go too far out of the, we'll just say rock or pop genre, but do you vary the the genres or the artists you work with by design? It's a little bit by design for sure. The one thing I don't want to do is like you're talking about working on a hard rock record after hard rock record or pop record after pop record after pop record. And it's more because then I hate myself because I feel like I fall in a trap and I repeat myself and it becomes factory work and I, I'm not really original or true to the project that I get in this sort of mode is, oh, okay, this is how you make a pop record. It mm. has to have these things. And if I bounce around stylistically, it keeps it fresher for me. And usually what happens is that I learn something from the past experience that I can bring into this other genre that I'm doing, and it benefits the record. But yeah, I, I really try to do things to not repeat myself. And if that's down to changing microphones or not using a certain piece of gear or buying new gear and using that on the project just to give it a new sound or having somebody else mix the record because I only can see it in this one light and I want somebody else to bring something fresh into it. It's definitely important to me. Change is important to me. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. 
So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. We talked about bands who don't want to budge on their vision and how that could prevent you from working on a record. Let's say you have some great songs, a great artist, you're in. Do you ever stop yourself from getting involved when, say, management is problematic or the label's problematic or people just don't want to negotiate on money and they just say, no, no, we have this small budget and that's it. And are there other factors that would prevent you from wanting to get involved? Yeah, I mean, you know, the budget's a problem nowadays on everything. You know, it's it's a quarter of it, what, what it needs to be, and you have to work four times as long. And yeah, there there are times that I've passed on things because I just don't think I can make a good record for the artist for that little amount of money because I feel like instead of four days tracking in a big room, they need 10 days tracking, or they think that they can do all the overdubs in a week. And I think it's going to take four weeks. And I think the singer's going to need more attention than he thinks that he can do all his vocals in two days or whatever, whatever it might be. And I'll kind of feel like, I don't think I can pull this off. So yeah, that, that will definitely alter my judgment about taking on the project inexperienced managers. Mm. That's something that's a real tricky one. Nowadays, the manager does so much in the follow through of the project. The record labels aren't doing as much as what they did in the 90s and in terms of promotion and tours and just all the other factors that really promote a record. So if I don't feel like the manager can really follow through, that's a problem for me, especially on an indie label, because you want the record to be heard. It doesn't do your career any good working on something that no one's ever going to hear. There's a point in your life that you need experience and you got to do every project that comes your way because you got to pay the bills and you got to learn the craft. But at some point, if you tie yourself up for months on something that no one is ever going to hear, it doesn't do you any good. So there's got to be a team of people involved that can drive this. So 
it's very, very often that I'll hear an artist and I'll get super excited about it and really love it and feel like I can do something and, and help them out. And, and the heartbreak is that you make a great record and everybody loves it. And even the critical reviews are amazing, but no one hears it because the label is so small and they can't spend the money for radio or promotion or tour support. And 10 people hear this record, it gets a nine in the critics' reviews and four and a half star reviews everywhere. But, you know, 10 people have heard it. And that's a heartbreaker. And it's on some level a waste of your time, you know. I've had this conversation about young, inexperienced managers with someone else. And I can't remember who it was, but it seems that there's a whole new crop of them just year after year that come into the, into the world. And, you know, there's guys like you that have a ton of experience, your manager's experienced. Is there a little bit of a, an education that has to happen with those managers? Are they receptive yes, to that? Definitely so. And, and that's tricky because then, you know, not only are you helping the artist along and on some level educating them, but then you got to educate the manager. And it might be down to things like the manager wants to get the A&R guy over to the studio before it's time, you know, <laughs> when there's really rough vocals on the tracks and the artist is embarrassed about anybody hearing the rough vocals, but the manager thinks it's great to just pop by the studio and have the A&R guy come along with and people are hearing stuff not only before they should hear it, but more so at a stage where the artist isn't comfortable showing it to anybody. So now you've deflated your artist as well as the A&R guy. So, you know, it's manager's job to kind of keep the record company up and positive and engaged, but not so engaged that they're hearing every part of the record. They need to be objective. They need to hear it when it's three quarters of the way done and needs a big picture check, not when somebody's deep in doing guitar overdubs or whatever it might be. So yeah, there definitely there are times when the manager, because of their lack of experience, can really hurt the process. Hmm. What business or financial mistakes should producers look out for in terms of career or working with an artist or signing up to work on a record? Well, the, the biggest one is because budgets are so limited now, I find I still get involved with projects because I love them. But somewhere down the line, you go, God, I'm going to need more studio time or I have to bring in some player to do a sax solo that the artist wants and there isn't budget for it. And so you got to keep the artist happy. So you go in and bring these musicians in and where's that extra money going to come from, even though you're going to go and tell the record label or manager at the time that, hey, we need more money to do this, do that. Usually what happens in the end, they go, oh, well, you know, you're five grand over budget, so somebody's going to pay for this and the label's not paying for it. So we're going to take that five grand out of what you're owed on the back end. So I don't know. It seems like so many projects I'm penalized on the back end. And you can't tell the artist, no, you can't have those musicians in. Mm. You've got to figure out a way to do it. You can never really say no to an artist. You know, you can say, hey, yeah, I think it's a great idea to do these strings that you want to add to the record, but we don't have the budget for it. So we don't, we have to figure out a way to do it inexpensively. So perhaps let's do it on keyboard, see if it works. Then 
then if it works, maybe we can just get somebody to come in and do a violin and a cello on top of it to make the synth sound real. And the cost will be $1,000 versus $5,000 for a string section. So you got to get creative and, and find those ways because the money just doesn't exist. You know, the way you operated in the 80s and the 90s in terms of where you worked is vastly different, I'm sure, from how you can operate today. So are there things that you have economized on in terms of studio spaces or ways to get more out of a project with less and, and just kind of adapt to the times? Absolutely. You know, for, for years, for 10, 12 years more now, I, I was camped out in Studio One at Sunset Sound, which is still one of my favorite studios on the planet. It's got a custom-made Domitio API-style console and just a great sounding, very 70s sounding tracking room. And loved that room and just did all my projects in there. Jason Mraz, Spoon, Young the Giant, so many things over the years. But that got kind of expensive. The studio would, maybe they'd give me a break and charge $1,000 a day, but most of the time it was substantially more than that. And record companies at one point just started to say, look, we're not going to pay $1,000 a day for you to just do a vocal overdub. Their budget isn't there. So six or so, eight, eight years ago, I put together this private room here on the Sunset Sound lot where I do my overdubs and in-the-box mixing. And it's great for vocals, guitars, keyboards, kind of one instrument at a time, overdubs. So, I mean, the, the nice thing here is the freedom from the clock and it's a private space. It's got natural sunlight coming in. So those are all pluses. But yeah, I had to forego having a nice analog console that I could spread all my faders out and the luxury of every day that you put up the track, it's a new day and a new balance. And there's something pretty wonderful about that. For me, at least working in digital, you kind of get your balance, you put your plugins in, etc., And that's the way the record is. And it was nice for me, the analog days, when every time you put that song up, your balance was a little bit different. You had to kind of fight, even with some automation systems for recall, you still had a fight to get back to how you felt the song, you mm. know? Just, oh, maybe the rhythm section's a little too hot versus the overdubs. And, you know, you, you get it to a place where you go, okay, yeah, that's the song. That feels really good. But in that process, you start to discover things like, oh, if I push the guitars a little hotter in this section or pull the keyboards out in this section... It's a different feel, and maybe that's pretty good, and it's something I should look forward to when I get to mixing. So there was always a, a little bit of freshness and magic that happened along the way. And now I find that in Pro Tools, you get your balances, you're making automation moves, everything along the way. You're working towards a final mix, and there's some pluses to that for sure. But there isn't that sort of little magical moment of discovery that would happen every morning when I put up the track. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever concern yourself with, well, I've kind of been out there a little bit too much or 
we're not getting out enough and we need to we need to do some seminars and, and I never think about that. If somebody calls me like yourself and says, Hey, would you like to do this podcast? I'm like, Okay, great. If we could schedule it for two weeks from tomorrow, I'm in. You know, okay. I, I don't know. I have a hard time saying no usually, you know, <laughs> uh, unless I'm just swamped and can't think of anything else. So, I mean, I'm really happy to pass on whatever I can. I think the Mix with the Masters guys are, are really doing a great job. And the thing about Mix with the Masters that's interesting for me, and this is maybe kind of selfish, is when I started, I started at a big commercial facility that had three four studios. So as an assistant engineer, you're put on different projects and you're working with different people. You're learning from different producers and engineers, working with different styles of music, different styles of artists, different personality types. And at the same time, you're sharing a lot of knowledge. You're running into somebody in the hall and they're saying, hey, you know, I just tried this microphone on this instrument and it sounds amazing. And there's this new piece of gear from, and, you know, I found that when I record like this, I get this result. And there's a, a great sharing of knowledge that happened. And it working in our little private studios here, that doesn't happen. Mm. You know, you read something in a magazine and you try to emulate it to try something new, but yeah, you never can quite get there. The thing I found with Mix with the Masters is a couple of things. Sharing of knowledge between the 14 people that are there with you. And most of the people that come to those seminars are experienced people. They're record makers. They're not newbies. And they're really passing on a lot of things to you. And the interesting thing is that often you'll start to show somebody, well, I usually try this and I do this and I do it this way. And they'll say, well, why do you do it that way? And you're sort of like, I don't know. I, I, I <laughs> just kind of do it that way. Why do I, what am I trying to get out of this? And so it makes you question your own process, your own habits, the way you look at things. You start to invite other people into your world and your process and your knowledge bank. And you learn a lot. I mean, I, I come away from those seminars, I think a, a better record maker, you know, because I've, I've just experienced 14 other people's way of, ways of making records. So it's really healthy sharing that knowledge to me because we don't have those sort of communal situations where we're running into other producers. You know, I used to see Joe Barisi or whoever it was in the hallway of such and such a studio and pop into uh, their room and go, oh my God, you're using those mics on overhead? Do you like them? Oh, wow, that's amazing. I got to try it next time. You know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So I don't know. I think the sharing of knowledge is great. And, you know, nowadays it's different because everybody has a studio in their home to some degree, whether it's just Logic or Pro Tools and a microphone or it's a big investment. So the artist that comes into the studio has had a good deal of experience in making records and they've got a process that works for them. And very often somebody will come in and say, oh, wow, you're using that plugin? You know, you should try this plugin. I, I get better results and I'll just go, whoa, that sounds great. I, I just, I never use that on bass. I always use it on vocal or whatever. So just, I'm always like, curious what other people do. I'm always looking for something new. I'm always looking to challenge myself. I'm always looking for ways to make this next record sound different than the last one I did. 
this, I have a project to mix coming up that is more pop and hip hop. And I'm going to buy a couple of pieces of outboard gear to change up my stereo bus chain because I really want the low end to sound a little different. And this, this band I was just telling you about, I kind of thought about what I want the sound of the record to be and how I want the room ambience to speak. So I was thinking about like, okay, I'm not going to put them in the same spot in the room and I'm not going to use the same kind of room mics in a certain configuration that I've used in the past. So that's just my nature. I, 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 I don't know just always looking for something different. You know, you talk about doing mix with the masters and how you really evaluate your own process and come away as a better record maker. My experience doing it with Chad was mm. pretty mind-blowing, not only because of Chad Chad has some pretty unique ways of doing things. Yeah. And I think at one point in in the process, I realized it built the confidence in me about my own process where I just didn't feel as insecure about things anymore. I just, I looked at what Chad was doing. I evaluated how I was doing things and it just gave me a better sense of self and identity as, as someone who loves to mix. And that's what I walked away from, from that experience. Uh -huh. That's, that's really great. That's really, that's a super positive thing. I usually have the opposite experience because everybody that comes into the seminars are so damn good that I always feel like, man, I got to step my shit up. These guys are kicking my ass. Oh yeah. The, the guys that I met at, at that seminar in 2017, I stay in touch with to this day and I was absolutely shocked at how good everybody was. Yeah. No, really. They, they just get a great crowd of people there. I want to talk about this collaboration that you have with Tone Lux. This is uh -huh. just for the audience. So you've teamed up with Tone Lux to manufacture a clone of the Sony C37A, and it's called the J37 or Joe Ciccarelli 37, which, you know, I was like, J-C... Oh, right. Okay, I get it. That started because basically when we first started the project, we didn't know what to name it. So it's a joke. It was the JC-37. And, you know, six years into making this thing happen, when it came time to name it, I was so spent. Everybody was so frustrated with how long it took to bring this to market that thinking about a name was the last thing in my mind. And I just said, keep it, just call it JC-37. I don't really care. This started... I don't know, six, eight years ago when I was getting a lot of records to mix from people that were done in their home studios and they were done using very inexpensive microphones, a lot of them that had really hyped top end. Mm. And the vocals were so bright that it was really hard to get them to sit in the track that they weren't, the microphones weren't bringing out the best qualities of the singer. And I had to work really hard as a mixer to get personality in the vocal, to get the vocals to be not so bright that they were harsh and took away from the song. So I, I just thought, gee, it'd be great if, if somebody could make a, a neutral, I shouldn't say neutral, a warmer sounding microphone, one that isn't so hyped on the top end and, and do it for a thousand, twelve hundred bucks. And I started to think about what microphones I, I liked and, and what were different sounding and what were easier to, to mix. And, and I've always loved the C37. I've always thought it was really warm, but it had a nice airy top end. And 
Sunset Sound has nine of them. So I'm always able to use those. So I, I had known the guys at Trident Audio, PMI Audio, and said, hey, you know, what would you think about trying to recreate this microphone? It hasn't been made in 40 years or whatever it was. And I think we could probably do it and do it quickly and inexpensively. And, you know, I knew nothing about manufacturing, you know, a little more now. But you know, trying to recreate this was just next to impossible. First of all, it's a very simple tube circuit and the transformer is really the sound or a large portion of the sound. And we had to evaluate dozens of different transformers, never really found one until we went back to the original manufacturer in Japan. They built us one that sounded nothing like the original. <laughs> and we had to go back to them a few times and they finally built us something that really had about 95% of the sound of the original microphone. And then from there, it was building the capsule and getting the capsule as close as possible to the original. We did did some modernization in that it's a beefier power supply, it's quieter, it's cleaner. I took out a lot of the high pass and low pass filters that they had put in the power supply in the original because I just felt like no one ever uses those. The original microphone had a mechanical adjustment, a backplate, if you will, that covered up the backplate of the microphone to make the difference between omni and cardioid. And it was this clunky mechanical filter that was always noisy and everything. And I just kind of said, look, I probably use Omni's 10% of the time that I'm working. And if this microphone is really geared a lot to vocals or single instrument recording, eh, most people aren't going to do Omni. So I forego that. So basically just kind of Streamlined it, modernized it, but really kept the essence of the sound. And I really think we're, you know, 97% the sound of the original microphone to the point where if you put one of the new microphones in with nine other C37s, it sounds like a C37. And the thing we found out in the process is that like all manufacturers, Sony changed the mic several times over the course of its production run. There are three different power supplies. They changed output transformers. They changed capacitors over the years. So you've experienced this yourself. No 287s sound the same. No two anything sounds the same. Share a, a tonal character, but there are obvious differences between the mics. But I'm confident if you put this in with originals, it has that sound. And the microphone itself just does a very interesting thing in that it's much warmer and much more relaxed in the upper mids where, you know, a Neumann is usually mid-range forward and a AKG perhaps is more tip-top forward. And the microphone has a nice way of rounding singers off, but still the microphone has a good amount of 15K, 10K, so you feel there's air and headroom on a voice, but it doesn't get too nasty in the mid-range. So for a lot of singers, it can be quite flattering. Hmm. 
I bet you got quite an education in this process about this mic. Unbelievable. Just just everything and how everything factors into the sound of it, the grill, the the body, the, the everything. And and things that didn't change the sound so much. In other words, using a different type of tube Changed the sound, but not as much as you might think. I mean, we kept with the original 6AU6 because I wanted to keep it as, as honest as possible. But there are parts of the circuit that you could change, and they didn't make that much difference. But like I say, I mean, this is in, in a lot of ways a part-for-part part recreation of the microphone to the point where if you had C37s that were broken, you can use any of the physical parts or electronic parts and swap them out and, you know, bring your mic back to life. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, producer-manufacturer collaborations are, are certainly not unheard of, especially nowadays with plugins. It's We see it all the time. But yeah. this, this is hardware. And without getting into financial specifics, you know, how do you, how do you assess a deal, how a deal like that would be structured? And are there others who have come before you that you you can reference and say, well, okay, this person who makes records joined with this company and they made this product together and the deal is structured like this. Is there any precedent for this? You know, it's a good question. I mean, I personally, I'm working on a percentage of the microphone and I, I just like you would produce a an album and you get a royalty percentage. Okay. Uh, this is almost the same kind of situation, but much more royalty than you would get on a record, especially because this was my concept and, you know, I brought it to them. And I have to say they did a great job. Brent Casey, who's the designer over there, was just meticulous at every single juncture and to the point where he's built building the capsules himself by hand. He's assembling and testing the capsules and making sure that every mic that leaves the building is at a certain frequency response curve, that the capsules are tensioned properly and delivering the right high end, et cetera, et cetera. So they've been really thorough about this stuff. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes for the audience. You can check out the JC37. Great. You can do your uh, your due diligence and, and yeah, yeah, investigate yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. I want to ask you something. I have a perception of you that you work all the time and you never take time off. Is that accurate? <laughs> you know, if, I, if I'm not creative, if I'm not active, I definitely get a little ornery. Uh, I definitely have to, I have to be moving. I, I really have to be creating something, you know. I'm not one to to sit around, so I, I I like the challenge, and I've been hooked on music and making records since I was a teenager and an adolescent, and just I don't think I'll ever grow out of it. So look, there have been definitely times in my life where I've gotten burnt and I've started to hate music. And yeah, at that point, you got to slow down and start to find a, a love for it again and and take a little time to to breathe. But, you know, I find if I'm excited about the music, man, it just keeps me going. And, you know, you asked about multiple projects before. It's almost like one project fuels the other because you're <laughs> so excited about something else that you bring that enthusiasm into the next project. It's not really a chore. And what do you do in your downtime? I mean, what do you do when you're not making records? I, I will chill. I love art. I love experiencing art and making art. So I might go to galleries or museums or whatever. Yeah, th those kind of things. 
Always involved in the art. You know, honestly, for me as a kid, I think I, I really always wanted to be a fine artist. I always wanted to be a painter. And I think my parents were like aghast when I told them that, <laughs> that they just kind of thought that I would only look forward to a life of pain and suffering <laughs> and, and probably that they would have to support me. And they just put me off that at a very, very young age. And I think to get back at them, I started to learn how to play guitar so I could just make some noise and annoy them, you know, but, um, so yeah. <laughs> well, we're almost out of time, but I, I want to ask you just yeah. a, a few remaining questions. Yeah. Yeah. How do you plan your time? How do you plan out your year? I know you have a manager. You, uh, ever since I've known you, you've had a manager. What is the process of kind of like looking ahead each year and going, all right, what are we doing? How, how are we going to keep all these projects in? <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. You know, sometimes there's one or two projects that are off in the distance. I'll know that, for instance, I've been really fortunate in working four or five albums with Morrissey now. Mm. And, you know, he'll often talk about, I'd like to make this kind of an album as my next album. And I'd like to record in January. And so there, there are those projects that loom on the horizon, if you will. And Charlie Bliss band that I did their last album and looking forward to making another album once things change in New York. So yeah, you definitely have to keep those kind of big projects in mind. It's always a drag when you're in the middle of something and you get a call for some artist that you have been trying to work with for years and really want to do something with. And all of a sudden they want to record a single tomorrow and you're in the thick of an album. And what do you do? Do you pass on it or do you go to the artist you're working with and say, hey, look, I've been trying to work with so-and-so for the longest time. They really want me to do this. Would you guys mind taking a week off? Would it really hurt the project if you just give me the space to do this and chill out. and Or if you want, maybe I can put you in another room with another engineer and you can do some keyboard overdubs or some background vocal overdubs, things that you wanted to experiment with. So those those things that sort of derail the schedule at times. But yeah, I mean, uh, certainly having a manager really helps your looking down the line at what are you trying to achieve, where you want to go. I always go to my manager and say, hey, I just heard this artist. Can you get me to this artist? Can you help me meet with their manager? Or can you set up a meeting with this artist? I'm really, really inspired by their music and would love to be a part of it. So I'm always kind of doing that. I'm always looking for future projects. And sometimes I'll go and meet with the artist and they'll say, hey, thanks for reaching out and thanks for meeting. This was great. Really good to get to know you, but I don't think I'm going to do an album for another two or three years. So let's stay in touch and somewhere down the line, maybe we'll do something together. Interesting. Most of the people I've talked to about management have said that their managers essentially manage the incoming, but they don't actively try to go solicit work on behalf of, of the person they're representing. Is that? I think that's true. I think most managers don't do that. They have work that comes in. They have the A&R guy that's calling them or the manager that's calling them saying, hey, you know, we have this artist that needs somebody to help them out. But I'm always looking out for things. I'm always going to a club when you could go to a club and, and hearing new artists and 
going and talking to them and saying, hey, you know, you might not be ready to do another album, but a year from now when you want to do another album, I'd love to be a part of it. Let's talk. So I kind of push my manager to go and find stuff by prompting them and suggesting that they get in contact with this label or this artist or this manager. And managers these days, do they handle contracts with the managers of the artists and make sure that you get your points, you get your fee. Yeah, managers. I mean, it used to be that you hired a lawyer to do the contracts. And sometimes I do for, for bigger projects or ones that are trickier negotiations. But usually the, the managers now are savvy because most record production contracts are kind of a formula, kind of a boilerplate agreement. And the manager knows the sticky points, knows what to look for in terms of credits and royalties and payment of your fees, et cetera. So they'll look after that. They'll they'll look at the contract and they'll know if it's in line with what it should be. Hmm. Absolutely intriguing. Well, Joe, thank you so much. My pleasure, Matt. I'm so glad we could get together, especially after all these years. You've been on my radar to have on the show but I always kind of thought, well, I know Joe, so I'll, I'll get him on eventually. And it, it happened when it needed to happen. So thank you so much. My pleasure, man. Really great. Really great. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Joe Ciccarelli here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you to Anne-Marie Plo for the editing, Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his wonderful voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Head on over to Working Class Audio. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.